what? You have a podcast? Computer. Show the historical documents. Really? Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. Fighting fascism is a full-time job! Amazing It is not enough to cater to the nation's whims. You must also serve the nation's needs. Well, I, think it's, I think you could think about it as a consequence, in some sense, of the lack of a concept of original sin, oddly enough. I mean, people bear an existential burden, you know. It's an intrinsic part of life to, I suppose, to feel guilty in relationship to nature and to feel guilty in relationship to culture. No, it's difficult for us to live in harmony with the natural world, and for the natural world to live in harmony with us, by the way. In the lead up to World War I, there were two lines of thinking. The first was, they'll never go to war. <laughs> we're all making too much money, right? And that was, that was very accurate, that was very true. There was, a, there was a segment of the world that just thought, there's no way we're about to go to war when everyone is doing so well. You know, uh, there was food aplenty, uh, money coming out of everyone's ears. It, it was a really good time, especially in Europe. Uh, now, it wasn't perfect. Of course, there was still, you know, starvation and things like that happening everywhere else. But there was a real segment in the world that thought the dumbest thing anybody could do right now would be to start a war. And they thought that because there was really no reason to go to war, like not an existential crisis. Like France wasn't thinking that Germany posed some great threat to the world. Now, of course, they did think they were a threat to them and Germany thought a threat to, from, from France. But it was it was a weird kind of just it was it was a thought program. It wasn't real. It was one of those things. It was like no one's going to war. However. The other part of the population, the other segment of it, was kind of going off of what Jordan Peterson was saying there at the beginning, that men, in particular, have a problem with peace, that we don't really coexist with nature, that we are, by nature, a destructive force, especially in our youth. And there was a thought going into World War One that was like, well, if we if we do go to war, it won't be that bad. And and really, that's it's it's good for us. It's healthy, right? It's it's healthy to go to war. Um, there were people who actually believed that war made you a better person, changed your outlook on things, made you more honorable and decent. And I'd like to say that that thought process hasn't left either. Remember, World War II was referred to, especially here in the States, as the greatest generation. They weren't the greatest generation because, you know, they invented the cure to cancer or something. They were the greatest generation because they went to war and they won. That's what made them great. So that idea hasn't gone away. Uh, we still have a revered status for our brothers in arms who come back. But there is a part of the, you know, world that really does believe that while, you know, war is a product 
of human nature. It cannot be avoided. And in fact, it sometimes should be encouraged. Now, I believe this is leftover remnants from over 100 years ago when the idea of total war, which was basically invented with World War I, uh, didn't exist. Uh, before World War I, wars were largely fought somewhere else, small little skirmishes. Kings and queens would, would battle with each other for kicks because they were bored and it was very localized and, and neither side really thought, oh, I'm going to completely invade and conquer France. No, they just, we're going to go blow up this fort we're going to get some concessions. They're going to pay us and, and it'll be good. You know, I'll have a little victory. I'll have a year or two where I get to go hang out in France and, you know, get to be a thorn in the side of the French and it's all good and it'll be over and no big deal. And then World War One happened and the idea of total war where, no, no, we're not fighting over a tiny piece of land. We are fighting to completely and totally eradicate you. And the only way you can stop us from completely and totally eradicating you is for you to completely and totally eradicate us. And that requires total war. You're not just targeting military institutions and soldiers. You are raping, pillaging civilians. You are targeting food supplies, water supplies. You want to kill the civilian population just as much as the soldiers and vice versa. So... The idea of necessary war is a very real thing that exists even today. And this brings me to another segment for, you know, there's this idea of government versus the state. So government is what we think of as uh, schools, uh, the FDA, the CIA. That's government, right? That's that's government doing government things. The post office. It's the day-to-day -day operations of everything. And in peace, we think very much about government a lot, right? We're at peace right now. School board meetings are nightmarish to go to, right? We all care a lot about school board meetings, about our democracy, about, you know, the post office and whether or not the FDA and the, you know, f is out to get you over COVID vaccines and, and all this other stuff. Like, like that's what we're focusing on right now. Culture war, garbage, <laughs> it's complete garbage. But when we think of it during peacetime, we think of government, we think of that kind of stuff. When we're at war, and I mean a real war, we don't look at government the same way, we start referring to it as the state. And this is all mental. You're not actually going to make a mental change in your brain from government to state. But things take on a different meaning. All of a sudden, standing for the national anthem at a football game takes on greater meaning, more importance. You know? All of a sudden, it doesn't really matter what's going on in school. You're very concerned with war. What's going on? The existential threat. Because some people also subscribe to this notion that if a population isn't constantly worried about an outside threat, that they'll start to turn the government into the enemy. And this is a very real phenomenon that does happen. So you've had leaders in the past, especially American leaders, who look at this problem and actually think, 
peace is a bad thing, okay? The Cold War was a gift to many presidents because for a long time we could kind of be at war but not really be at war and that really helped because the population was focused. And it was only near the end when people started realizing, you know, we this Cold War thing is kind of not true, that they stopped paying attention to it. And then you started seeing things unwinded. But luckily, you know, the Cold War ended. But almost as soon as it ended, like almost immediately, suddenly we had this country called Iraq. And Iraq all of a sudden became a huge deal when... It wasn't for the longest time. Like, Iraq was just something we heard about on the news forever, and they kept warring with Iran, and, you know, uh, Donald Rumsfeld was shaking Saddam Hussein's hand, and, and we thought he was an ally, and then all of a sudden, the Cold War ended, and Iraq became enemy number one. And that took some selling, because Iraq was nowhere near the existential crisis that the Soviet Union was. Right? The Soviet Union was nuclear war and the threat of global domination by communism. You know, they, were, they weren't just going to irradiate us. They were going to change the way our whole world worked. Right? They were going to change it all to communism. We were all going to live under Stalin's boot. And when Stalin died, that really was a harm to American presidents. They needed another boogeyman. And Stalin just works, right? Stalin passes away and the presidents have to come up with new boogeymen. And it's it's really hard because Iraq just doesn't it just doesn't do us do it for us. Especially considering all the way in 1992, we kind of kicked their butt. Iraq was nothing. We obliterated them very easily. Very easily. Um, but we didn't, you know, in a lot of people's terms, finish the job. We left it up. So fast forward. Now, all of a sudden, you have 9-11. And 9-11 is a fantastic gift to politicians with this conundrum of what do I do when people actually start differentiating the government from the state? Remember, politicians want those two things to be one because that way you can't possibly criticize government without criticizing the state. And you cannot criticize the state. That's bad. Some of these regimes have been pretty quiet since September the 11th but we know their true nature. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. Right there, barely four months after 9-11, and the United States president goes ahead and lists off three brand new bad guys. Iraq, 
chiefly among them. They don't know that yet. But he goes ahead and he names his bad guys, calls them the axis of evil. Out of nowhere, suddenly, the American people weren't really interested in Afghanistan anymore. And it was only four months later. Saddam Hussein was now, you know, public enemy number one, not Osama bin Laden. And that was a huge shift. It was an intentional shift. And we, we all know now it was full of bull, but... That was a very conscious decision to extend this thing. Because think about it, the war on terror would have ended completely had they actually achieved the objective of getting Osama bin Laden. That can't happen. It's not good enough to kill the terrorists. You also need a new boogeyman, and that is states that sponsor terrorism. That is the new boogeyman. That's the new attack. So then, of course, they go ahead and they get the UN Security Council Resolution Number 1441. This is a, excuse me, this is an authorizes the resumption of weapons inspection in Iraq by the UN. This was seen as a compromise. The rest of the Security Council was sitting there like, I'm sorry, America, you just don't have a case here. But the United States really wanted a case, and they really wanted a resolution. So the compromise was, okay, 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 we're not going to let you go to war. But how about we set up an extremely challenging, difficult, you know, weapons inspection for Iraq. And, you know, we'll make it very clear that there will be serious consequences if Saddam Hussein doesn't fulfill his end of the obligation. And of course, they make all this language very vague, and a lot of uh, European leaders, particularly France and Germany, make it very clear this is not an authorization for a war. However, it sets up rules. It sets up the table, basically. You can't play chess unless you know how to set the table. I'm giving you a political analysis here. This, this is a setup. The chiefs want to go in. They need to redeem themselves for the Bay of Pigs. They gotta go in this time, they gotta do it right. I'm gonna protect those pilots. They're boxing us in with these rules of engagement. If you agree to them and one of our planes gets knocked down or one of the ships won't stop for inspection, the chiefs will have us by the balls and will force us to start shooting. They want a war, Jack, and they're arranging things to get one. Fast forward a couple months, and the United States Congress goes ahead and votes on the Iraq Resolution of 2002 and October. The House votes 296 to 133, mostly along partisan lines. However, there were a lot of Democrats who were in favor of this, and the Senate passed it 77 to 23. So, Almost veto-proof majorities, but it wasn't needed because the president was going to sign this. The Iraq resolution was not a declaration of war. It was not. There was never actually a declaration of war given. However, the Iraq resolution was written in such a way that the president could, quote, use any means necessary, unquote, to make sure that Saddam Hussein would comply with the previous resolution to reauthorize the weapons inspections in Iraq. Now, again, setting the table, getting everything ready, 
And this is all a big deal, right? You had 296 members of the House vote yes, which meant a lot of speeches, a lot of propaganda, a lot of jingoism being pumped in. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, all U.S.-based media were scared to criticize the administration, so they went along with all the stories. The administration uses words like biological terror more than nuclear. After a while, it was very clear that Iraq didn't have WMDs, so they had to all of a sudden make it, oh, he's being secretive about it. And he's got these mobile chemical plants and everything else and, you know, stuff that's really out of science fiction or CIA, you know, terror books and everything else. Totally fabricated, non-existent, never happened. None of it. It's all been debunked. It's all complete fooey, if you want to call it that. But polls showed that most Americans, even after that pro-war vote, I guess, said, we want the UN inspectors to do their job. We want the UN to go ahead and do its job. And if the UN, but that leaves an out for Saddam, right? If the UN comes back and says he doesn't have anything, well, then the United States is kind of screwed because they really want to go to war, right? So how do you go to war? You change the goalpost, you shift it. So instead, all of a sudden, poll questions changed. And it was no longer... Do you think we should go to war with Iraq because of WMDs or what do you think we should do about the UN? You know, no, it went basic and it shifted immediately because the polls showed Americans wanted the UN inspectors to do their job, but they jumped. And you could get over 60% of American support if you asked them, do you think Saddam Hussein should be removed from office? Well, that's an easy question. Saddam Hussein's a bad dude. Yeah, absolutely, he should be removed. See, you can end that. You can bypass that. And that immediately became the drumbeat for war. Basically, what ends up happening immediately, very quickly, January 2003, Bush goes ahead and gives his speech to the State of the Union where he makes a very strong case to go into Iraq to regime change to free the people, to liberate the people, right? The whole mantra of it over and over again. Not two weeks later, Colin Powell, February 5th, is at the UN. Our most trusted emissary goes before the world and gives a speech. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqi's behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. It should be noted, he is not under oath. His speech is not fact-checked live. He's not questioned. This isn't, this isn't a witness versus lawyer situation. He's allowed to say whatever the heck he wants to say for as long as he wants to say it. And, of course, it comes out afterwards that even he knows he's full of it when he gives this speech. All of it is based on shaky intel at best, uncredible witnesses, Things that could be explained away. For example, one of these mobile chemical trucks that they found, they opened it up. It was totally empty. 
something to hide, right? That's what they need. They have something to hide, and we've got to go find out what it is. It's an empty truck. What could have been in it? Aha! We found ammonia! What's ammonia used for? Used for cleaning! Clearly someone cleaned this truck! What could have been in it? Possibly chemicals, because they didn't want us to know about it! And I wish I were making it up, but this was literally the justification for the Iraq War. Come to find out, if they actually did their job and tested it, that ammonia was from urine. Somebody took a leak in the back of a truck. That's literally what it was. Urine. But they took that story of the mobile truck that had been cleaned and scrubbed clean, forensically almost. All embellishment, all based on absolutely nothing. A hint of truth. Yes, they found an empty truck with ammonia in it. And they went ahead and fabricated this entire story from there. All of a sudden, Iraq went from somebody nobody was thinking about to something everybody was thinking about every single day for a year and a half. Public perception, even after 9-11, when we were really in favor of some war, they still had to sell the idea of going back to Iraq. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance. Congratulations, you made it to the end of the show. Thank you very much for listening. I would just like to remind everybody that this show is not monetized. I don't have commercials. I don't ask for any commercials. Uh, if Facebook's got one of those buttons that says, you can reach 500 more people if you pay us $10, I always click no. Uh, there's absolutely no money going into this. This is free software. I use Audacity. A few other things. Um, and it's a one-man show. It's just me. So the way to support the show and make sure that it gets out there is strictly through you guys. Like, subscribe, share, leave a comment, write an email, uh, like us on Twitter and all those things. So thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. To feed a person on an all-plant-based vegan diet for a year requires just one-sixth of an acre of land. To feed that same person on a vegetarian diet that includes eggs and dairy requires three times as much land. To feed an average U.S. citizen's high-consumption diet of meat, dairy, and eggs requires 18 times as much land. This is because you can produce 37,000 pounds of vegetables on one and a half acres, but only 375 pounds of meat on that same plot of land.